Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Markin, and today's episode, I am actually chatting with Stephanie Gray Connors, and she does a lot of work in the realm of pro-life ministry. And so we're going to be talking about assisted suicide, we're going to be talking about abortion, controversial topics, but I hope you will find this helpful. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Daniel Markin, and today I'm joined by Stephanie Gray Connors. Stephanie, how are you? I am well. Thank you for having me on. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you on. And as we were just discussing pre-show, we have a lot in common because you spent a lot of time in Vancouver. You yourself are a Canadian, correct? Yes. So I'm actually one of the Vancouverites born in Vancouver at St. Paul's Hospital in 1980. (laughs) Uh, And then I was raised in the Fraser Valley, actually out in Chilliwack. And um, over then my adult life, once I uh, went to university, I went to Vancouver, but I also went to Alberta, went to Ontario, and now I find myself in Florida. (laughs) That sounds amazing. It is. Yeah, yeah. So you have chosen to speak and and do a lot of ministry on topics that are super controversial. And so those are some of the things we're going to be talking about today. You know, we're talking about your work in relation to abortion and in relation to assisted suicide. And these are two topics that are deeply, deeply heavy. And so I just want to first off saying thank you for uh, jumping into those, for making that your work, for uh, taking on that call for stuff. Because a lot of people uh, were not well educated in how to think about these issues. And, and I would love to, as we begin discussing, um, you know, if you could explain how some of these views came to be, right, especially in Canada, um, with abortion and then with assisted suicide and actually where they fall short of the gospel. So if you want to introduce a little bit more of, you know, how you came to make these the topics that you get to speak and and present on, I'd I'd love to hear that. Mm, Yeah, great question. So I, as I mentioned, we all though born in Vancouver, raised in the Fraser Valley, and both my parents were really involved in the pro-life movement and my mom volunteered at a pregnancy care center. So all through my growing up years, I was very aware of the issue of the sanctity of life and the gospel call to love the least of these, to love our neighbors, we love ourselves. And I saw my parents doing that and living it out in a very practical way. So that laid the foundation for my conviction. And then the turning point for me was in my first year of university at UBC. I went to a pro-life conference for pro-life university students from across Canada. And the conference was in Toronto and they brought in an American speaker named Scott Klusendorf And he spoke all weekend, equipping us on how to defend the pro-life perspective using science, using philosophy, using human rights. And I was hearing someone who was so reasonable and logical. And I thought, I can use these arguments. Like, this is what I need. I know that I am pro-life, but he's telling me why I'm pro-life. And I want to be able to express this to others. And he's equipping me to do that. So after I heard him speak all weekend, I actually became convicted by the Holy Spirit that I was meant to to do what he does. So he actually began mentoring me from a distance. He went back to the States. I went back to Vancouver and I finished my degree over the next three and a half years. And then when I graduated in 2002, 
I went into full-time pro-life ministry, teaching apologetics, primarily in the beginning of life. But then as time has gone on, unfortunately, in Canada, but also in many parts of the world, including certain states here in America, uh, assisted suicide has also become something that's normalized and accessible. So that has also led to me teaching apologetics on the other end of life. Wow. And when you say, just to clarify terms, assisted suicide, can you explain how that's different from euthanasia? Are they the same thing? Good question. I pretty much use the terms interchangeably. I mean, there are slight nuances where people will say, well, you know, one is where you are administering a lethal dose yourself. So someone is aiding you by giving you, let's say, drugs, medicine, that you, well, it's not really medicine because it's not helping you, but uh, drugs that you then put in your hand and you put in your mouth and you swallow versus um, someone injecting you with something and it's at directly at their hand, which is causing your death. But I find that as with the abortion debate, language really matters. And those who are in, not in favor of the sanctity of life will often distort and misrepresent things by the words that they use. And the term euthanasia is largely meaningless to a lot of people. It doesn't create any type of visceral reaction. Um, I've heard it said as a joke, but I've actually heard young children overhear euthanasia being discussed and saying, why are you talking about kids in Asia? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of confusion over that term. But when it comes to suicide, we there's this universal instinctive reaction of sorrow and sadness at anyone feeling so despairing that they end their life. And so because euthanasia slash assisted suicide is really involving someone wanting to end their own life and acting on that, albeit with the aid of others, I think to use the term assisted suicide taps into the instinctive sense we have that this actually isn't a good thing. You know, I'll say to people, if suicide is wrong and if homicide is wrong, then blending the two together in assisted suicide, which is kind of like a homicide, but also a suicide, can't make two wrong things right. So that's why I choose the, the terms assisted suicide. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. There is not a, a thing to be glorified. However, our culture seems to have a, a perspective on that, which says, at, at least with assisted suicide, you're going out on your own terms. And so with this idea of individualism, it seems like with assisted suicide, it's like you, you can choose when you go out, it's on your terms, right? You, you can actually choose when to end the battle of cancer, right? And you see this, like it reminds me of a movie. There was one called Me Before You. Like it came out a few years ago. You've probably seen it. Like uh, we watched that with our young adults. And uh, it was such a sinister movie because you have this love story that begins to blossom for this nurse caring for this young guy uh, who I believe is paralyzed. And at the end of the film... Uh, he's enormously wealthy, and just to give away the ending, at the end of the film, he elects to commit assisted suicide, right? And he because he was so fed up with his life, and the way that they craft the ending, the last five minutes of the movie, uh, with like beautiful music, not sad music, but like hope-filled, beautiful music, and at the end, she's smiling and 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 happy that he's gone on to be in peace, and we sat there. And, and the uh, like, the emotional feel at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, it was so good that he did that. You know, like they're so happy. And then you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. He, he just like he just committed suicide, and they just glorified that. And so I found that uh, very, very shocking. 
It is, and it goes to show, it's an important reminder for believers that Satan rarely, if ever, shows up with a pitchfork and the red horns on his head. Uh, he's more like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He comes across making sin look attractive, making a violation of God's commands look magnetic and, and pull us in that direction. And so we that's why being equipped is so important. We, we need the wisdom to discern when something is actually being misrepresented. And um, unfortunately, yes, when it comes to some end of life issues or, or positions that people hold, is they try to portray it as a good thing of, you know, me making my autonomous, independent decision that has no influence on others. But we know any decision we make, action or inaction affects others. You know, I think even when suicide happens, there typically is a rise in other suicides in that very community. Or if a famous person commits suicide, often when that's advertised in the news, then, then you see an increase in that. So our actions impact other people. I, I often use an analogy that's not directly related to assisted suicide per se, but there's an incredible young woman from Colombia by the name of Zuli Sanguino, who was born without arms and legs. She only has half of her arms, neither, neither of her legs. She's obviously gone through a lot of suffering being physically different. She um, faced the loss of her dad when she was two, he committed suicide. Uh, so here you've got this girl without her father with special needs, then she's sexually assaulted. She's raped at some point in her, her childhood. Um, in high school, she's teased so much that at 15, she thinks about ending her life. So praise the Lord, she doesn't end her life. Praise the Lord, her mom is really supportive of her and tries to encourage her that she can do great things even with her differences and her suffering. So she's become a motivational speaker. She's a beautiful artist. You can find her work online. But my point is that because she's become a motivational speaker, her story has been aired through the media. And there happened to be a young man that had gone through a lot of difficulty in his life. And he was so despairing. He was going to end his own life. And he was so close to it. He had obtained a gun and he was in a room and he was going to blow his brains out. But he happened to turn the TV on as he was preparing to end his life. And the TV station he tuned into was airing an interview with Zuli. And so this guy just suddenly is captivated by the very visible, uh, the visibly different appearance of this young woman who's physically disabled, the stories that she's sharing of all her suffering and how she has a will to live and motivation to find hope even in dark places. And as a result of hearing her story, he put down his gun, he picked up a pen and paper, wrote her a letter, and they became friends. And I use that as an example to say, had Zuli had the attitude of fit at 15 by saying, you know, if I end my life, that's my independent choice. It doesn't impact other people. That actually would be proven false because had she ended her life at 15, her story of overcoming hardship never would have been aired on TV at a pivotal moment years later when someone else would have then ended his life because he wouldn't have encountered Zuli. And it was only because of the choice to continue living that she actually had a positive effect on who had been a stranger and, and now a friend. So when, when people say, it's just my choice, it doesn't affect you, we can use stories like that to say that's actually not true. No man is an island, as John Donne said in, a, in an ancient poem. Uh, we, are, we are interconnected and influenced by others. Yeah, we are. And and especially as believers, right, we have that relationship with God, but that that's the vertical relationship, but the horizontal relationship um, comes with that. It's like, you know, 
the moment that you have that vertical relationship with God, that horizontal relationship with other people, with other believers, uh, is instantaneously there. It's now part of your life. And what I think what you're describing is, you know, the effects of sin. Because I think that's just, that could be applied to anything, right? You have sin is like a grenade. You can hold it long enough, right? And you think, well, if I, if I hold it, it blows, it'll blow me up. And it's like, there's shrapnel that hits everybody, and, and everyone's affected by that. It could be, it could maim them, it could traumatize them. Uh, you don't know. And that is true. We're all interconnected in that way. I suppose um, with this issue of, of assisted suicide, has this been getting like uh, way more traction? Because I, I almost feel like it's gone a little bit quiet. And, and what are you seeing kind of, because maybe now that's normalized, people aren't talking about it as much. Yeah, good, good question. I would say that, like any controversial issue, it comes in waves. And certainly, you know, I think it was about five years ago where the Supreme Court threw out, the Canadian Supreme Court threw out the law against assisted suicide. And basically, these unelected judges told our elected representatives, you have to come up with a new law that allows for assisted suicide in certain circumstances. And unfortunately, uh, a majority of our elected representatives did that. The new law was created now allowing for it. And it was just, I think, in the last year where that law was expanded in Canada to allow more people to be able to access assisted suicide, including coming down the pipe, people with mental illness, which is, I mean, so distressing to think how many people who struggle with bipolar disorder or depression will say, I want to die. And wait, does that mean now because of the new law, the, that sentence, I want to die, is going to be taken seriously and they're going to start to fill out assisted suicide papers instead of being admitted to a hospital where there's one person in their room the whole time keeping them on suicide watch to try to give them suicide prevention. Um, so I would say that whenever there is, seems to be a slight change in the law, then it kind of makes more headlines. And then as that passes, then it seems the debate dies dies down a bit. Uh, but I have been hearing that there's a, there's a group in Canada called the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. And in one of their reports that I got, they were talking about an increase in assisted suicide, particularly in the last year with COVID lockdowns. And you know, I think about what you said about, you know, our vertical relationship and our, our horizontal relationship with God and then with others. And we, by virtue of being image bearers, we are made for a communion of persons. We're made for relationship because that's what God is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this relationship of giving and receiving love. Humans were not meant to be alone. Uh, we know that from the book of Genesis with Adam. Uh, man was meant to be in communion with others. And so when you go against one's nature and you isolate and you marginalize, which the last year and a half has done, then you increase despair. And then that can lead to people wanting to end their life, whether it's suicide by itself or whether it's assisted suicide with the aid of others. As we think about this as Christians, well, how should we think about this as Christians? Like, my understanding is that we... we believe that life is God's and that he is the author of life and he can choose to bring it and he is the one who is to, to end it. Is it accurate to say that assisted suicide goes against the way of God because now we're trying to play God? Absolutely. It is taking into human hands the power to end life, which as you pointed out, that's God's domain. We are creature. Uh, we are not creator. And God even tells us, you know, in the Old Testament, I set before you life and death, 
choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Now, that doesn't mean that's always easy to do. We have to acknowledge that God created a perfect world without sin. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve ruined that by introducing sin into the world. But God is preparing another world to come where there will be no more tears. And we're in the middle of the story right now. And in our broken world, there's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. But we have to remember that amidst suffering and pain is an incredible opportunity to love others. So I think, for example, one of my favorite quotes, I mentioned it in my book on assisted suicide. Um, there's this little booklet called On the Christian Meaning of Human Suffering. And um, one of the previous Roman Catholic popes, John Paul II, wrote this quote in there in which he said, suffering unleashes love. And I absolutely love that message because if you think about it, when do we, as Thomas Aquinas said, will the others good? When do we step outside of ourselves and focus on the other instead of just me? And isn't it when the other is needy, vulnerable, weak, or suffering? And it's their vulnerability that heightens our love and affection for them. And so when someone is suffering, when they're in pain, rather than eliminate them, we ought to alleviate their suffering. And we do that by love, by being in relationship, by giving them our time and attention, by sitting and holding their hands, you know, um, recording their thoughts if they can't communicate, you know, by typing themselves or writing something out. And, and it is through love that ultimately we find life. And that's really the gospel message. Uh, man sinned. We were separated from God. So we were suffering. What did that do? It unleashed God's love through Jesus who came to the world to die and rise from the dead. So our sins could be forgiven and forgiven for what purpose? So we could have eternal life. So suffering unleashes love, love unleashes life. But assisted suicide doesn't follow that trajectory. Instead, it says, I see suffering, I unleash death. And when you unleash death, you get more death. I agree. And I think there's an interesting apologetic for people who, like, like you mentioned, with Zuli, her suffering and her going through the suffering actually helps someone else in their suffering. And it sounds a lot like the words of Paul in Colossians where he says, I'm filling up the afflictions that are lacking in Christ. And it's kind of a weird phrase because you're sitting there in the beginning of Colossians and you say, Paul, what does that mean to be filling up the afflictions that are lacking in Christ? I thought Christ went to the cross and faced all the afflictions. What do you mean there's afflictions lacking? And I, I heard actually, it was a long time ago, I remember where I was in college reading a little biography. I don't remember who it was about, but it was written by John Piper. And he had a, a great little series called The Swans Are Not Silent. And it was about all these different martyrs and, and heroes of the faith. And there's one person who's faced enormous suffering. And, and with that verse, he was just teasing that out a little bit and saying, filling up the afflictions that are lacking in Christ. And not that there's any affliction that is lacking in Christ, not that he lacked affliction, but it's that he ascended to heaven. And now we on earth carry on in the work of Christ. And some of that work is suffering. However, through our suffering and how we handle suffering, it actually proclaims something about what we believe. And the way we suffer actually tells the world uh, what we value and what we love. And so through Zuli's suffering, through you know, friends that we have who are believers who are suffering, we actually see God through that because it causes people to ask, maybe the person in the hospital bed next to them, what is it about them that they're so joyful in their suffering? 
Why are they why are they so happy? Who are these people coming with them, visiting with them, praying with them, singing with them? I've never seen this, right? And it as itself it becomes an apologetic about in in a society and a culture so afraid of death. There's people who uh, actually through their suffering are glorifying God. They're unafraid of death and they're they're painting a different picture and telling a different story. Absolutely. It brings to mind two amazing Christian women. One is Johnny Erickson Tata, who uh, dove into water when she was 16 years old and didn't realize how shallow it was and became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And she has endured so much suffering. I believe now she's either in her 60s or 70s. And not only has she lived a life of paralysis for the majority of her time on earth, but although you're not supposed to feel when you're paralyzed, she then developed a couple decades after paralysis, chronic pain where she lives in chronic pain and then she developed breast cancer. And I mean, it's just one story of suffering after another, but she's joyful. She runs a ministry where she serves other people who have special needs and require wheelchairs and she spreads the gospel. And so when someone like her can suffer as profoundly as she has, but instead of being bitter, instead of wanting to die, she wants to live as fully until death comes knocking for her, but she's not going to go running after death. I can't help but think, okay, if that's how her attitude is in these difficulties, then that inspires me to have that attitude. You know, or I think of Elizabeth Elliot, who's now deceased, who was a Christian missionary with her husband in, I believe it was Ecuador, and her husband flew a plane with other missionaries into a tribal land and was speared to death by the people they were trying to convert to Christianity. And not only did this woman lose her husband when she had their only child who was just a baby, but she then moved into the jungle to convert her husband's killers to Christianity, which she then, which she successfully did and then spent her life in ministry sharing the gospel and got married again. And then that husband died within a few years. And it's like one suffering after another, but you read the testimony of someone like Elizabeth Elliot and you're like, Oh my goodness, she is glorifying God. She is praising God. And if she can have that attitude amidst difficult times, then so can I. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to shift gears a little bit here, though, um, because you spent a lot of time also discussing abortion. And, uh, I, you know, we, we've talked about, I believe, on the program before, it's something that I think a lot of believers are familiar with. But I want to ask you, as someone who's a, a thought leader in the area of abortion, what are some things that you're seeing now that we should be aware of as believers? But also, what are some things that you think are perhaps helpful for our listeners across Canada to be considering? Meaning like, just that you, you have your perspective and what is like, a, not a different perspective. I think what I'm trying to ask is, what's something that a lot of times, a lot of people don't think about when talking about abortion that actually would be helpful for us to have in our own minds as we begin to share and talk about it with people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good questions. So in terms of like what I'm seeing with the culture, as time has gone on, it's become very clear to me that debating people on this subject is so challenging because it's not just a matter of the intellect. It involves the emotion. It's not just the head, it's also the heart. And, you know, I mentioned in my own story, having encountered this logical, reasonable pro-life speaker, Scott Klusendorf, and thought, I want to train others to be logical and reasonable as well. And there's a place for that. And I still do that. But as time has gone on, I've come to see 
that you can be super logical, use a lot of philosophy, be very rational, but if the person you're speaking with has had an abortion or drove a friend to an abortion clinic or their mom had an abortion or they're a victim of sexual assault or they went through profound suffering, like maybe they were raised in poverty, for example, any of those circumstances, let alone a blending of them, can cause someone to set aside all reason and logic because they are emotionally tied to wanting to justify abortion because of their personal experience. And that in no way should change the Christian's position on abortion because our position ought to be God's position, which is that humans are so valuable, they're worth dying for. And we're made in God's image. And if God values humans that much, then I have to value even the youngest humans among us that much. And if God said, thou shalt not kill, then, then I can't kill. So it doesn't change our position, but what I often equip people now in is it changes our interaction. And when dialoguing with others who seem to be resistant to the reasonableness of the anti-abortion position, you know, to ask questions like, I'm curious, where does your passion come from? Or when did you first come to this position you hold now? And did you hold a different position earlier? And why did you change and when did you change? And it's those types of questions that can cause the person to then reveal what their personal story is, which then gives us an opportunity to really minister to them to, for example, express sorrow if they've been victims of some type of abuse and say, I'm sorry for the suffering you've endured. You should never have had to go through that. Um, and, you know, and to say, if that's not our story, I, I don't know what that's like. So what does someone whose experience has been yours want someone like me, whose experience has been different, to understand. And that person will probably be taken aback by that because they expect the pro-life person to just shove views down their throat. And when they get this open-ended question, like, what don't I know? Please enlighten me. Then not only does that cause the individual to share more, not only does it convey that we value them as much as we value pre-born children, but it will also likely elicit from them more of a warming up towards us so that they then want to understand our position more. Well, how did you come to your position then? What influenced you? And then you have a meeting of the minds and, and the heart. And in terms of, you know, just kind of across the country, you know, what, what do, do Christians need to be aware of? I think, first of all, from a Christian perspective of all the passages in the scriptures, that really reinforce the, the humanity of the preborn child. I think the most powerful is in the first chapter of Luke, after the angel Gabriel visits Mary and says, you know, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And he says, your cousin Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived. She is with child. And the scriptures say Mary makes with haste and she runs to visit her cousin and stays with her for several months to help her. And what I find striking about their um, meeting is that when Mary enters Elizabeth's home, the scriptures tell us that John the Baptist immediately in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And Elizabeth then puts words to the action of a preborn child and says, um, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it's that last part that's really key. Blessed is the fruit of your womb because if we were to pause and ask ourselves, why did John the Baptist leap for joy? It's because this late term fetus recognized when Mary entered Elizabeth's home, she didn't enter alone. She was like a walking tabernacle bearing in her body, God himself in the form of a first trimester human embryo that might not have even implanted yet. 
And so, yes, we see life in the womb with John the Baptist, but he's actually pointing, as John the Baptist always did, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is always pointing to Jesus, and he's recognizing this first trimester embryo of God, who's also man, and that's why he's leaping for joy. And so for any Christian who would ever question, is there life before birth, and is there life in the first trimester, and is there life before implantation, I always say, go to the first chapter of Luke and and take an in-depth read of of that. And then, of course, from a non-Christian perspective, we look to science, we clearly see that beings which reproduce sexually begin their lives at fertilization. It's not debatable for other species. We accept it for dogs and cats. And so I just simply point out because humans are like dogs and cats insofar as we reproduce sexually, science has already concluded that life begins at fertilization. So when you take the science and you take the religion, particularly Christianity, and you put those two things together, there should be no doubt in the Christian's mind that this is an issue that matters and that we have to raise our voices about. That is one of the like coolest things I've ever heard on that passage. And that's, I'm totally going to be using that. Good. <laughs> um, I guess another perspective on childbearing uh, and, you know, just to shift gears a little bit, we're coming kind of in for a landing here on the, on the program, but you are actually coming out with a book on the subject of infertility. Uh, Yeah, so it's a book on in vitro fertilization and infertility because then there's the other end. So you've got some people that are pregnant and they don't want to be. And then on the other end, you have people that aren't pregnant and want to be. And as with the abortion issue, as with the assisted suicide issue, the issue of fertility and infertility really should cause a Christian to pause and say, what does God think about this? And how ought I orient my life to God's ways as opposed to just create my own philosophy around my inclinations or desires. And so I've just seen over time a great need to help Christians think deeply on this other issue. And so, yes, I have I have a book coming out on that at the end of the year. Yeah, um, because I, I didn't know this about in vitro, but, but my understanding of like in vitro is the parents of the, like they have to decide how many eggs that they want to try with. And there's a chance that, like, if you say, hey, we'll go with seven eggs, there's a chance that all seven of them could be fertilized. And that brings up a ton of, of issues. It's like, oh, my goodness. And so then the, the difficulty there is, well, what happens if, if seven's too many, right? Now are you going to end those lives? And so that is something that I was never aware of with in vitro. And so I'm, I'm happy that you're uh, speaking into that because it's something that unfortunately, probably a lot of people are going through alone. Right. Thank you. Yeah, it's such an important issue because the, yeah, the the idea of having offspring with one's beloved is so beautiful. I mean, I say this is a pregnant woman who's about to give birth in six weeks. So, you know, to to carry in my womb the child of my husband and me is just such a blessing and such a gift. And life is a gift from the Lord. The question we want to ask ourselves is, do we have a right to create a human or do we have a responsibility to receive a human as gift? And and those are two separate things. And then once we, if we go down the path thinking, I have a right to another person, not only a child, but even a spouse, one, one, one could even turn a desire for a spouse, let's say into an idol, for example, or something that they want to grasp at or, or make happen. Um, if we claim we have a right to someone, 
um, then the problem that arises, as you pointed out, in the IVF industry is often many eggs are harvested, they're fertilized in the lab with either the spouse's sperm or a stranger's sperm. So then we're also creating genetic individual individuals who genetically wouldn't ever be related were able to come into be through marriage because we're taking the parts of unmarried people um and then yeah our seven eight fifteen embryos being created not all of them will be implanted are some being killed right away are others being frozen what are the effects on that human being of being put in a freezer if that human is thawed will the thawing process kill them so there are so many questions that come up related to this topic, that when someone maybe begins down that path of exploring what they can do with infertility, they are ill-equipped or unaware of to realize what that industry does. And so, yeah, this book will be an attempt to kind of open people's eyes as to what actually goes on, to all the while acknowledge the deep pain of uh, infertility and the profound suffering and cross that is. And then it also tries to explore, okay, well, what, what are ethical responses to infertility? What is a way we can respond to this situation of, you know, the body not working right? And how do we work within God's design? So all of that definitely needs to be un unpacked and explored. Wow. Well, I think we're going to have to have you back on the program because that's going to be amazing to talk about and, and talk through. But Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here and just sharing your wisdom and knowledge. I'm sure it's going to be very helpful. So uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. And yeah, we look forward to speaking again. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you again, Stephanie, for being on this episode. And if you want to listen to more content that Stephanie has produced, uh, we encourage you to go to her website, loveunleasheslife.com. On it, she has articles, blogs, but also links to other videos, including a talk she did at Google on abortion from controversy to civility. So she's definitely somebody who's leading in this field, and we want to encourage you to check out more of her stuff. Thank you for listening. We look forward to connecting with you next week. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In Doubt is a ministry of good news global media designed to speak into faith, life, and culture. These are challenging conversations for young men and women who have chosen lives for Jesus, while at the same time are constantly engaged by the culture and philosophies of the world around them. It causes us to ask about the relevance of the Bible, how to engage our world, how to share the gospel, and perhaps the most difficult question, how does the young follower of Jesus live a holy life? Join us each week as we dig deep into faith, life, and culture. For more information about InDoubt or to offer a gift of support to this young adult ministry, visit InDoubt.com or call 1-844-663-2424. Thanks.